0: Morning, church. How we doing? Woo, 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 woo. Would you grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter twenty? Exodus chapter twenty. <clears throat> Excuse me. Will be our primary text, verse thirteen. Will also be in Matthew chapter five. So, if you've got a couple of ribbons in your Bible, or if you have a way of making a bookmark, or uh, if you're just ready to type it in, that is good. Uh, A couple of things before we uh, jump into this text. Parents, if you've got kiddos going downstairs because our screen uh, is out, or rather our projector, uh, just be checking your phones, um, which you never do during the sermon. I know um, that you are diligently focused on God's Word, um, but this time we'll make an exception. There may be a text message if your kiddo needs you. So that will be the way that our children's uh, folks get a hold of you if they need to. Grateful for those men and women who are serving uh, down there. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get it that way. Also... If uh, you notice, one of the things that we sang today, that kind of struck me, is that idea of, and I was ch- trying to explain it to one of my children uh, as we were singing, but if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. I think that was such a profound uh, way of writing something, and I think what the, the Word of God always invites us to do is come and come now. Don't, don't come to this Word once you've figured it out. Don't come once you've comprehended every little aspect Uh, of it but a lot of times scripture teaches us that that the whisper of God is a still small voice and I think often we can hesitate um, or or if you like pump fake in the paint and wait and not actually come to the Lord because there's something holding us back the brilliance of God's invitation is come right now come as you are and if you've been gathering with us for a long time then today come come as you are if you've never become a follower of Jesus come come now come as you are if you've been tracking with Jesus for a really long time and you need to be impressed by something in order to draw near, come now, come as you are, no matter what it is. If you tarry till you're better, if you tarry till you'll figure it out, if you tarry until you've got it worked out, you actually are never actually coming to the Lord. You're coming to some facsimile, some fiction that you have created. And so the invitation is always come, come right now. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 reads this way. You shall not murder. This is where the Lord providentially has directed us uh, after the Advent season. So let's go to him and ask for his help as we navigate God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do need exactly that. We need your help. As we come to your word, I, I know for myself, oh Lord, I can't figure this out by myself, let alone obey it. And so, Lord, I've spent some time in this text and around your word. I need your help. I need your spirit. I haven't figured it out. I'm now ready to proclaim it. And therefore, I get it. Father, I, I need help in this. I need your word to call out sin in my heart, weariness and woundedness that perhaps I don't even want to look at or think about. And I imagine it's the same for my brothers and sisters, for my friends, my neighbors who are gathered in this space this moment. And so what a gift it is, God, that for such a moment, or right now, that you are a God who is able and gracious to speak directly to our soul. You don't just speak to our mind and give us new information today. You speak to our souls and give us what we didn't even know we desperately needed. And so, Father, would you do that by your Spirit, through the power of your resurrected Son, would you speak to the souls of men and women today? We tremble before this word. We ought to. But these are the words of eternal life. These are words that tell us the truth of a reality that we cannot discern on our own. As the Lord Jesus said to the apostle Peter who proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood cannot reveal these sorts of things to us. But only our father in heaven. And so we just ask, we're desperate that your spirit would shine brightly through these scriptures. Shine brightly through this text that we would have a right view of you, God. That we would learn not just to become something individually, but to become something as a people that we might see in our time, in this place, your kingdom come, your will be done right here and right now as it is in heaven. Help us to not just say those words because they're somehow poetically roll off of our tongue because we've heard them before, but God, to believe that truly The things of heaven by the power of God can descend and rule and reign right here and right now in our world. We need that. The news reminds us we need that. Our hearts longing reminds us we need that. Children remind us that we need that. Our work reminds us that we need that. Our relationships remind us that we need that. We need your kingdom to come. And so, Father, use me, use this moment for your purposes. We want to be available and completely give our attention to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, we, we took a short break from the Ten Commandments and from the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, we've been sort of comparing and contrasting, if you will, or truly looking at the Old Testament Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments and seeing how Jesus either generally or very directly fulfills these uh, ten words or what's also called the Decalogue. And we realize one of the the challenging things about teaching from the Ten Commandments is that they are still pretty, have a pretty strong hold in many aspects of our culture and our world. They're still lauded as pretty inspirational and helpful words for our day. They're, They're universally understood to be helpful, to be true. In fact, The would-be theologian, uh, American rapper, Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX, said it this way, the truth does not change. It was the same when Moses got the Ten Commandments as it is today. That's the thing about truth. That's the amazing thing, or that's the thing, rather, about real. It doesn't change, and it doesn't have to change. He said in 2011 with an interview with Vibe magazine, he understood what the Ten Commandments truly revealed to us is truth. It's clear. It's it's one thing, though, to read these words and to believe that they're helpful. Isn't it another thing to live them? To live them out. To be sure the great weight of the Christian life is reading the truths in Scripture and desiring to see them in our world, not just out there, but even in here, in my own heart. In fact, something actually begins to take place if you really read the Ten Commandments is that you realize the impossibility of them. Yeah, I mean, you might go through the list, and maybe the one today is low-hanging fruit, do not murder, and you you feel as though, okay, I can can live under some of those. But when you look at the full weight of them, you can't. But then Jesus, right? And that's good news for us, isn't it, church? But then Jesus steps into the story, and in a particular uh, moment, he teaches the famous words we've been looking at in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about not only the depth or the true meaning of the commandments, but how he has come to fulfill them. Isn't that good news that that Jesus reveals to us the true meaning, the depth of these commandments? He also comes to fulfill them, specifically these Ten Commandments. And so in many respects, Jesus does this thing that is actually quite frustrating. He makes the Ten Commandments harder to follow, and he also makes them possible to follow. You have or have not done this particular thing, but tell me what's going on in the depths of your soul is what Jesus says. He makes them harder. After all, Jeremiah says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, so though we may be able to keep our hands clean, our hearts are in desperate need of purification. So Jesus, though, makes it possible by fulfilling these scriptures, though. Right before we get to uh, a text that we'll look at later, Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says, Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus fulfills the law. He satisfies the law, if you will. He not only lives them out and abstains from what he is called to abstain from, but he embodies the fullness of the spoken word. He is the incarnate word of God. And then he fills us with his spirit, making us a new creation, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. In other words, empowered and enabled to obey the commands of God. He makes them harder, and then he makes them possible. How good is our Lord Jesus? He doesn't dumb them down to make sure we can all follow them. He actually lifts us up that we might be able to follow them. The Ten Commandments then sort of cast this shadow over history, don't they? Unshakable moral expectation of God. And now through Christ, enabled and empowered to obey those things, we now become the people of God. See, religion tells us that ultimately, if you keep your hands clean, you will be clean. What Jesus tells us is, I have made you mine, now live this way. Not get your act together, figure it out, but I have made you my people. This is what it means to be my people now. We come to something today, we come to a word today that doesn't just reshape though the heart, but it begins to reshape an entire community. That's what these commands are meant to be about these commands were meant to be about a whole perspective, a whole picture of what it means to be a part of a kingdom people, a kingdom people made for the purposes of a king. And in this particular vein, a uh, rich young man came to Jesus one day, and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists a number of the commands, and in fact, he includes the sixth, seventh, and eight. Now, when we look at these commands, isn't it true These sort of seem like basic tenets. When we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder, that feels obvious to us. This, along with perhaps the seventh and eighth that come after it, seem less religious and worshipful acts than they seem like just common sense. Killing someone, sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, and taking things that don't belong to you all seem like basic tenets of civilized society, right? What in the world do they need to be part of the Ten Commandments for? This is actually exactly what the late atheist Christopher Hitchens contended. He says one of the great questions of philosophy is do we intently or innately rather have morality or do we get it from the celestial dictation? A study of the Ten Commandments, he writes, is a very good way of getting into resolving that issue. He believed that the commandments were obvious and inborn ideas and therefore merely give another reason why God is not great, nor is he necessary. But this rich young man comes along. This rich young man comes along and asks Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the rich young man says, well, which ones? Which ones do you want me to keep? Don't, don't you love that? Jesus says, like, holistically keep the commandments. And you're like, could you just give me a few? Like, which ones? Which ones? Which ones? Because all of them might be hard. Which particular ones are at the top of your list? Jesus goes to, I think, kind of a shocking place when we think about it. But he actually says in Matthew 10, to not murder, to not commit adultery, and don't steal. The man's response, well, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Or I've not been doing those things since I was a kid. I wonder if our response would not be the same, I do those things. I don't do those things. Therefore, I'm good. In other words, like you and I and folks like Christopher Hitchens, the rich young man thought you shall not murder was simply about not taking a life. And he hadn't taken a life his entire life. But what if the sixth commandment is not that simple? What if the whole of God's law is not that simple? In order, to, I think, to understand the complexity of what God is trying to get at, or, or rather what he is getting at and what we need to try to understand, is that we need to face a couple of presumptions with this particular mandate, a few assumptions that we make. First, we assume God is talking about all forms of murder. He's talking about all forms of of killing. But is he? See, we need to establish some sort of biblical idea of what specific kind of murder God is speaking about here in the Ten Commandments. Does God have all of killing in mind? Is he he including war? Is he including accidental murder? Is he including systematic murder? Is he including the kind of murder that comes along because of corporate systems or ideologies that I may be unaware of but participate in sort of passively or is it just personal? See, murder is much more sophisticated and complicated than we often just look and read into verse 13 in Exodus 20. So secondly, we need to also consider through this Sermon on the Mount our presumption that all of us are far from murder we're all very far from it. See, what Jesus does is very uncomfortable is he draws us really close. He draws us really close to the concept that we think we're far from it, but in actuality, we are much closer to murder, to taking a life than we dare to care admit. Thirdly, the third presumption I think that we need to address uh, from this text, from God's word, is that we have sort of presumptions about why murder is wrong, why God would outlaw it. But when we assume that there should be this sort of native acceptance that murder is wrong, we also assume the logic as to why it is wrong and never actually address it. So we never fully understand God's logic or his heart behind this prohibition because we assume it's just wrong to do so and therefore just don't, don't do it. And we never delve deeper into the heart of God. So what is murder? It's specifically within this context. Uh, what does it mean that we're closer to murder than we suspect? And why is murder long and then, wrong? And then we'll look at a few different uh, implications. So why, what kind of murder is in mind here in Exodus 20, verse 13? Well, the word in Hebrew for murder in this particular verse is Rasa. This, this particular word is, is a more, uh, less common, I should say, word, but the definition of it is to take a life of another and to cause the state of death. Seems pre- pretty basic, but it's only used 40 times in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, much less popular than the two other forms of that particular idea or that verb that are used over 350 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. These more popular words are more general, so the writer of Exodus records a particular word of God that includes neglect. It doesn't just include the kind of murder that takes place when I take a weapon to a particular person, but even neglect or a causeless kind of murder is taken into account in this less popular, less used word, rasa. All of this to say I don't believe all killing is being outlawed in this particular commandment. It doesn't mean that you cannot make a case for that from the Scriptures. It just means in this particular case, what this commandment is getting at is more specific than that. See, with a more thorough understanding of these primary words for murder, the act of taking a life, we can discern a larger, a more specific rather, prohibition that God is making here, one that he makes in Hosea 4 as well as Jeremiah 7. See, contextually, God is speaking to his covenant people. One of the things that we read about the Ten Commandments, wrongly, we read into it, he's speaking to all of humanity. That God is communicating all of humanity, here's what you must all do. here's, Here's the mandate for human beings to live in order and peace. Now, to be sure, if all humanity followed these, it'd be a wonderful place to live this world. But God is not speaking to everyone. He is speaking to his covenant people. He's speaking specifically to his covenant people. He's not giving general guidelines He's talking about righteous commands to his people. Scholar John uh, Durham gives a sort of fuller understanding of what's going on here. It's important to understand, he writes, this commandment along with all the rest as one in a series of Yahweh's expectation of those who who would enter into covenant with him. Rasa is an act of killing, premeditated or not, related to vengeance or not, that violates the standard of living Yahweh expects of those who who have given themselves to him. The primary reference of the commandment is religious, not social. The emphasis on rasa as a verb describing killing that occurs primarily within the covenant community may be a correct one. What is certain is that rasa describes a killing of a human being forbidden by Yahweh to those who are in covenant with him. What's this all mean? Well, this prohibition against murder was a worshipful command, which first and foremost was not a mandate out of respect for other human beings, but out of obedience to God, who had not only given you your life, but had given you life within a particular community. That God has given his people to one another in covenant community, in family, so their submission to God looks like love and affection with their brothers and sisters, not killing them. Church, this is still true today. Do you know you have been given to one another? Let that settle in. Because isn't it true? We can just show up, me, myself, and I, the trinity of the false gospel community, right? Me, myself, and I, we are coming to church today in the collective and royal sense of myself. We don't look to the left and the right, front and behind us, and the community around us. And then when things... It get challenging or when things get challenging for someone else my spiritual formation is such an individualistic thing that those things actually bear no witness upon me we've been given one to another by god the point is not just don't kill each other but cherish one another so the commandment do not murder means that that's the exact opposite of why i've given you each other i've given you one another for life not for taking it therefore this particular prohibition does not include killing in self-defense, wars ordered by Yahweh, capital punishment following due process of law, or even accidental manslaughter. This is a particular mandate for God's particular people that he is calling them into covenant community, whom he has called here. It doesn't mean you cannot make those cases elsewhere. It means that right here, this is where God's attention is on his people, his covenant community. Because to take the life of a covenant community member would be the exact opposite reason about why you have been entrusted in community. That's what murder, I believe, means in this particular context. So how is it that we are closer to murder than we often believe? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. See this commandment that God has given uh, his people, the Lord reiterates uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right side, New Testament. If you get to uh, Mark, Luke, and John go back to the left to Matthew chapter 5. So when, when we are trying to consider how is it that the murder is actually closer to me than I often presume, because when we read that commandment, when we read the sixth commandment, we almost go past it. You go, oh, that's a no-brainer. I definitely don't have to pay attention to that. But, but actually, the Lord draws our attention back to the family of God, back to the covenant people of God. It's actually closer than I thought it was originally. So that's step one in terms of proximity. But there's also a second aspect of closeness. If you remember, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom ethic announced. This is him communicating what is true, what is righteous within his rule and his reign. Through these these three chapters, we're given one of the greatest sermons preached of all time. Jesus speaks about his not yet of this world kingdom, or not of this world kingdom, this altogether different order that, that is invading the space and time of our world through his power, through his authority. And we realize that Jesus is fulfilling these promises within himself, within his own authority, and the same is true specifically with the sixth commandment. Hear this in chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus addresses the sixth commandment, but right away he reorients it. He reorients, reframes it around the heart. Jesus changes the game. Now, for those of us who thought we were far because our hands were clean, now we have to ask, is my heart clean as well? You see, where you and I may read Exodus... 2013 and think about what we have or have not done with our hands, Jesus draws our attention to our soul, to the deep contours of what we think, of what we feel, of what we love, of what we hate, about what gets us angry. You see, once again, religion tells us if your hands are clean, you are clean. Jesus says the thing that truly needs to be purified is your heart. This is where a dividing line comes, I believe, even within the church today. That we can reorient our lives, try to anyway, around commandments and ideas and believe that those who are superior, morally superior to those in the church are those who are doing more good things as opposed to those who are doing more evil things. But the the scriptures do not divide people this way. They're divided around our surrender and submission and the ratification of our heart to King Jesus and his kingdom, which therefore then results in a righteous kind of living. And so he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't, don't murder. He, he says more like this, don't be angry. That's a lot hard. All of a sudden, it got real close, real uncomfortable, because wasn't it nice when we could kind of sit back and just say, that feels distant, that feels far from me. But it's not. All of a sudden, murder is not something that takes place out there, but in here, Why would Jesus refocus our attention? Why would he do this? Well, first, because he can. Let that just settle for a second. The logic of Jesus is wrapped up within his identity. He is the logic of God. He is the word made flesh. Therefore, by his own authority, this entire series is framed around Jesus can say that because he is Jesus Christ the son of the living God. This entire series, I say to you, is based upon what takes place in verse 21, right? You have heard it said, and then in verse 22, but I say to you. See, rabbis in the first century would have given their particular perspective and interpretation about what God's word says. And like any preacher today, they ought to ground their authority in the only place where we find authority, God and his word. And therefore, whatever I say in this moment, whatever any of our elders say from this particular stage, proclaiming the goodness and mercy of Jesus is not coming from our consciousness, not coming from our hearts. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to me, but only our Father in heaven through his word. Like every preacher of our day, the authority of a rabbi in the first century needed to be strictly grounded in the word of God, not in their own authority. But Jesus says, I say to you, I say to you, So when Jesus expounds scripture and then starts using this very personal language, what he is broadcasting, even more than the content of his words, is the content of his character, the nature of his identity. When Jesus says, I say to you, parenthetically, he's saying, I'm God. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. I'm the fulfillment of all the ancient promises of God. I am he who your soul has been waiting for. Unrivaled nature. He's saying, this is, this is who I am as much as this is what you are called to do. So he refocuses the commandment on the heart because he is God and he can. So this is sort of this moment for us as a church, which we hate, right? The Lord is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few. Let my words be few. There's also another reason. The second reason Jesus interprets do not murder to do not be angry is because the heart is the birthplace of such violence. In particular, anger is the inception of murder within the covenant people. But it's not just because anger will lead or will likely lead to external sin. You see, many forms of anger are deeply sinful in and of themselves. When we have anger in our hearts, we treat our brothers and sisters inwardly the way murder treats them outwardly. We dismiss them and we disregard them. We try to act like they don't exist, or we we suppose a life with them not existing, right? The way we do this digitally is just unfriend them, right? We stop following them and act as though they do not exist because we have harbored bitterness in our heart, and so instead of dealing with that, we just digitally put it to the side. We think poorly of them. We imagine their demise and pain. We think the worst about them. We never give them the benefit of the doubt. We, We live within our hearts how we wish we could live externally if there weren't any consequences. Isn't it true the heart unfettered by the consequences of this world would do all kinds of other evil outside of the heart that it desires to do inside of the heart? In short, we think about ourselves above everyone else. That's where anger, the anger Jesus is speaking about. But notice, even though he reframes around the heart, he continues this familiar language. Continue looking at verse 21 and 22. Jesus speaks about murder in verse 21, but then he moves into this idea of anger, and he says with who? With his brother. He didn't just say with anger with anybody. He says specifically with brother. He continues to use this covenantal familial language. He keeps everything really close. Are you uncomfortable yet? So he's not just talking about general anger out there. Sometimes I get frustrated. He's talking about being angry with people in this room. He's talking about being angry with people in your group. Like, let's get it down. Let's get it down to the 12 people that meet on Wednesday nights at my house, right? He's talking about those folks. Translate that in your mind to your group. I know it's not about my group. It's about your group too, all right? Your group's got anger issues as well as mine. And my, my fam here, we'll talk about it later. So he keeps using this very close and intimate language because we constantly want to feel like sin is out there. Sin is happening out there. Murder is happening out there. Anger is out there. Now we're talking about the family. Jesus is saying to us, murder is not far, murder is close. Murder is the anger in your community. Murder is the anger in your heart. Jesus explains the inception and even expression of murderous anger in two particular illustrations. Notice in verse 22. First, through insults, he employs a word which really means to say raka to. And he says insults, which is an ancient term of abuse. Secondly, he says through saying you fool." Now, what's really interesting here is Jesus doesn't use bad words. Usually, we have this list of words, right? You know what they are. We try to make sure your kids don't learn them until they're 18, right? Until they know how to use them. We'll give them a car before we give them certain words, right? That ultimately, there's a list of words that we think are really, really bad. But actually, what Jesus teaches here is there's not a list of words, dare not say those, but a kind of heart that you need not allow to express in anger. That's a lot harder, Right? We freak out when somebody says one of five words, but we sort of become permissive when someone's anger is unfettered and unmitigated and goes off on people as long as they use the nice words. Jesus says, no, something's going on in your heart when you say fool and when you insult people. Now, it's really difficult. These are very unfamiliar and not used often sort of terms, but what it seems like at least is going on is that Jesus is talking about two aspects of calling someone or being confrontational with someone because of what they think, their intellect, calling them or saying raka to them like you idiot, or something about their character, that you're a hypocrite. So when you're speaking this way in judgment over someone, Jesus is saying be very, very careful you're not harboring bitterness See, let's be very clear. This kind of harboring bitterness may not actually lead to killing that person, but you've sinned and broken the commandment already. Already. Because in the sight of God, anger like this is tantamount to murder. There's much destruction, isn't it true? There's much destruction you can bring to somebody's life without ever laying a hand on them. There's much destruction you wish you could reap in their life if only there were no consequences 1 John 3.15, though, holds us biblically principled to this idea. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The consequence of anger and murder is really severe. It's really clear. It's death. John writes that, that such a person has no eternal life. Jesus goes on to say here in verse 22, did you notice? That such a person will be judged and liable to the hell of fire. You have anger in your heart. You say, "Raka, you you fool," and insult somebody. Have all this anger boiling in you. Now, why? Why is this murder so wrong? See, we must not murder and be angry with our family. And this command is much closer than we realize. Murder is really close. It's in our hearts. Why is this so wrong? See, we often have these bland explanations, right? Like, well, people are valuable and murder's the opposite of life, etc. All good things, all good reasons, all, all things that I think appropriately, independently are helpful, but there's more. See, when we consider the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount together, along with the immediate context of these two specific passages, something else more acutely begins to come into the foreground for us. I think it's actually the severity of the consequences that Jesus speaks about, liability to the council and to the hell of fire, which reveals the reason why murder and anger are so sinister. You see, there's only one type of person who does not have eternal life. There's only one person who sits in such, under such severe judgment. There's only one type of person that the scriptures teach us goes to hell. It's the person who sits in authority in their own life, that person. Instead of submitting to God and the supremacy of his authority over all things and everyone, they refuse, this person does, to release the control and power of their own agency, therefore committing themselves to eternal death and separation from God and a life filled with anger and murderous thoughts in their mind and heart. In this case, the manifestation And this particular heart condition is just that, murder towards your brother or your sister. At worst, it leads to murder, or at at even best, it's murder within your heart and hatred towards a fellow family member. This is lethal to your soul. Anger is essentially the fruit produced in the soil of a heart which is set in a particular way that those around you refuse to go. In other words, I have an expectation that you do not follow, therefore I am angry because you are not submitting to my will like I'm submitting me to my will. When the world does not move within the orb of our particular desire, murder at its most basic level is taking over, then taking control and agency and authority from another person. This type of anger Jesus is speaking about begins with the presumption of self-authority, of sitting in judgment over, believing we are righteous unto ourselves. Jesus has just said in this particular passage in in, uh, Matthew 5 that if you want to enter into eternal life, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. And this anger is one of three, or or one of multiple rather, ways that he is illustrating this particular idea about how our righteousness must ascend that of the Pharisees. Murder, to which the Ten Commandments speaks, then begins with the same personal perception of supremacy and of self-aggrandizement, of looking to self as the center. That's what leads to anger. That's what leads to violence. This is so bad because only God sits in that seat. Right? What perhaps just began as like a little irritation, because don't we come up with all kinds of other words except I'm just angry? I'm irritated, frustrated, hard week, while inside I'm boiling. I'm enraged. I'm having a hard time with some reports this week. And when, in, in actuality, I, I wanted to punch the wall. Not like metaphorically, like literally I clenched my fist and was ready to punch the wall. Like that happened. What's that? Anger really is a selfish act of trying to take back control from God or from the people around us. When they do not submit to our will, anger tells us we can make them submit. But God alone rightly sits in that kind of judgmental, or rather that judging seat and that supremacy seat and that righteousness seat. This is partly what it even means for him to be God. He alone sits in that kind of capacity. One of the reasons thoughts of supremacy and self-authority leads to anger and to violence is because we're not fit to sit in that seat. We don't have what it takes to weather all of that kind of moral authority and psychological well-being. The weight of it is far too great for any of us. God's supremacy led Isaiah to ask this in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Do you not, have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. See, God alone. Sits in supremacy as creator and king. Hannah recognized the supremacy or supreme worth of God. When the Lord blessed her with a son, the prophet Samuel, she rejoiced in prayer that there is no God like the God Yahweh. In her acknowledgement of God as the giver of life and creator, specifically for her son, here's what she says. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. On her son's birthday, she's like, praise God because he kills and brings life. She understood that the same God who was able to bless her, when everybody said that she could not have such a child, the same God who was able to bring life also was the God who could take it. This rings true not just in her life, but we see it throughout the scriptures. God made life, he can take it. He does this in the final Egyptian plague through his Holy Spirit in Exodus 11 and 12. And at the Korah Rebellion, God killed 250 people by fire in Numbers chapter 16. See, God takes life. The 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards understood the anger of God to be so elemental to his character that Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon is titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If I told you that was going to be the sermon, the sermon title today, I, I don't know what you would do. I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably go, let's go back to the, let's, let's, let's edit that. Let's think about maybe, I don't know, under-promising and over-ing deli- over-delivering this Sunday. This is what he titled. See, God's anger is demonstrated throughout all, not just that it leads to death, But in the character, the nature of God, terms like jealousy and wrath are regularly used to describe God's nature and revealed in scores of passages through Scripture. This is not, this is not like some shameful thing that like leaked out a couple of places because sometimes we're just like, ooh, God got a little crazy. Let's just go, Psalm 78 has some like anger in it. Let's go to 79 real quick. Let's just move past that one. Something happened, God is a little bit, but God actually is not embarrassed Do you know that God is not ashamed of who he is? He owns it. He knows it. And he's not trying to hide it. Hear this in Ezekiel 16. God is unnervingly self-aware and comfortable within his character. Verse 32 says, so, this is God speaking. So I will satisfy my wrath on you. And my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm." And will no more be angry. What? God's anger has not accidentally leaked out. And now he's doing like this huge PR stunt. And he brings the New Testament in to try to like distract us. Look, I love you. Kidding. Sorry about all that. He never does that. You know, the passages of scripture that we want to go back to all the councils throughout church history and just go, could you please have just taken that out? It would have ministered to my neighbor a lot better if God didn't kill a bunch of people. See, we are so embarrassed by God because we don't understand him. How can this be so? How can God be so wrathful? How can he take life and then uh, in another turn command us not to do it? Because we're not him. Just start there. There's some serious tension to resolve. First, let's remember, God is not prohibiting all kinds of murder here in Exodus 20, but a particular kind. He is not prohibiting all kinds of anger in Matthew 5, but a particular kind. Not all murder is outlawed in uh, the sixth commandment, and not all anger is outlawed in Jesus' words. See, acknowledging this nuance helps us to understand. You see, God is not only in a position of moral and authoritative superiority and supremacy, meaning that he can do as he pleases because he is God, but he binds himself in justice. He also is always operating in justice. He he is not like we assume. In our anger, we have no boundaries of morality. Our anger is unhindered outside of Christ. Our anger is unhindered in our flesh. God in his kindness and his character, his anger is hindered, if you will, by his justice. He is always in his wrath, just. He is always in taking a life, just. He is never not just in what he is doing. It's not an hypocrisy, it's not an injustice. See, it is the hypocrisy and injustice of murder and anger which are being prohibited in the commandments and in the Sermon on the Mount. God is righteous in taking a life, and God is righteous in his anger, and God is just in all of his ways. The complexity of his character is something the world knows nothing about outside of Christ. There is no illustration that communicates it, there is no person that we can look to who has all of that, he alone is perfect Perfect in his wrath and his taking life and his anger and his justice always. Still, we're mad and uncomfortable. So let's talk about that a little bit more. See, based on this character sketch, I'd like to suggest to you two sinful patterns revealed in this word. First, we get angry when we shouldn't, and we take life when we shouldn't. However, our misalignment with emotions and justice reveal that we don't get angry enough sometimes, and we are far too often surprised by death. See, our anger problem is one of self-righteousness. Our murder problem is one of hubris. It's revealed in our collective presumption that we are morally superior. We believe we are morally superior. That's the issue. Therefore, we have a tendency of believing we are more righteous than God, believing that in the same circumstances we would have handled the Egyptians differently, or at least we would have been slower to anger. We wouldn't have got angry that way. See, we believe he went too far in many cases and shouldn't have killed all of those people because we wouldn't have. See, we have this distance even morally from God. You may never say it. I may never say it. But that's how we believe low-key when we read some of these passages. Like, oh, I wish I would have been there. I would have given some counsel. I would have been like, yo, in like 4,000 years, this is going to be a real problem for us. So if you could just take a step back and calm down, I learned a few steps. My anger management counselor that I'd like to offer you, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ancient of days who created all things. I've got some things that you're probably missing here. Calm down. We don't know what to do with God, do we? When we really look at him, we really consider his character, we are so embarrassed by God, his behavior, that we navigate through the Bible and simply avoid those tensions and never actually address them in a healthy way. In fact, one of the most millennial things I've ever seen in my life I was reintroduced to this week. It's the way we deal with God's anger and murder in the Bible is that we publish a book called Awkward Moments in the Bible. It's a children's book that the publishers say is not for children. Through colorful illustrations and sarcasm, the authors try to convey what they view to be absurd or as the title explains, with awkward nature of the biblical narrative. In the forward the, f- the first volume, there's three of them. I have no idea how they got away with three of these. Just real talk, just between me, you, and the recording, right? <laughs> the author tries to explain their intentions in the book this way. This book is much more than an irreverent gag gift. It tackles the age-old problem of biblical ignorance in a surprisingly powerful way. Now, I love humor. Completely helpful. Jesus uses humor constantly to prove a point. And I believe that biblical ignorance in the church, including ours, is a sickness that we must diagnose and by God's grace, through his spirit, cultivate a diet for his word appropriately. But let's think about this. By playfully illustrating the flood, genocide, and infanticide, we play to the cultural gallery. We suppose God's anger is a punchline a gag gift to laugh about and simply call awkward. As a people, we are serial overusers of the word awkward. Let's talk about this for a second. We trust it to get us out of all kinds of deep thinking and difficult conversation, of more sophisticated spiritual formation. It's just what we do. When faced with an uncomfortable challenge like Homer Simpson meme, fading back into the bush, right? That one. If there's any meme that summarizes us as a culture, as a people, it's that. When things get uncomfortable, when they get difficult, when it takes thinking and spiritual formation, we just sort of shift back into the bushes and hope nobody saw us. Some of us wish God would have done that in a lot of these scenes of Scripture. See, when we get back, when we back away and deem something awkward, we're not only opting out of entire meaningful conversations and necessary engagement, but we are pronouncing judgment over it as well, considering ourselves to be morally superior as the ones who get to deem it as awkward, unhelpful, and something I don't have to deal with. And so we don't get angry. We don't get angry over sin. We are constantly shocked, if not disgusted, by the vengeance and consequence of death in the Bible and in life in general. And therefore, we know very little about God, the God of justice. Because we spend so much of our time uncomfortable with God's response to sin, we are baffled when we continue to see sin in our world. We don't like the way he's dealt with it, so we sort of make up and manufacture our own way. It's no wonder that we, why we continue to long for justice in our particular time, in our neighborhood, in our city, and in our world. It's no wonder why God's justice seems so absent from pimp-ridden street corners and high-rises filled with greed and houses darkened by abuse. We have spent our entire lives embarrassed by God's brand of justice. We just think it's awkward. We even laugh. We think we know better, and then we're shocked when our world is continually filled with brokenness. So as a people, we are regularly tempted then to seek our own brand of justice, our own version of making things right, and it is permissive, it is unhorrified by the brokenness and evil of our world, and it's void of any moral authority, and we wonder why it's not working. Our anger is misaligned. We get angry about insignificant moments. Lord, help me. I get so frustrated with my children. Help me, God. And I'm so unaffected by sex trafficking in my city. By income inequalities and the fact that people have to leave a house that they spent generations in. I'm unaffected by it. And when I read the New York Times, things don't strike me at the heart, but just the head. Here's another murder. Here's another casualty. Here's another country. Broken, messy. I'm so glad I don't live there. And I move on. How is it that my anger is piqued by the insignificant and unhindered, untouched rather, by the truly broken? The issue is in my heart. The issue is not with my hands. We murderously sin against our brothers and sisters. We harbor bitterness, unfounded anger. Anger is based upon our righteousness and not the Lord's. Jesus says this type of behavior is actually a heart issue. Something going on deep within the contours of our life. I think that's why we don't want to face it. That's really hard work. It's hard work to face the realities in the dark recesses of our soul. It's easy to just get angry. Just to get frustrated. Especially with our brothers and sisters especially with those closest to us. I was shocked recently when my mother, bless her heart, came to visit my children and we started to warn her (laughs) about one of our children who in that particular time was having a really hard time with anger and throwing fits. And uh, she said, oh, don't worry, he won't do that with me. And I was like, "Okay, (laughs) okay, parenting Yoda, you got it. And she said, no, it's not because I know exactly what to do. It's because he doesn't know what I'll do. (laughs) What will you do? (laughs) What exactly are you planning? (laughs) Oh, Grandma. (laughs) She said, he only gets really angry with you and loses control with you because he knows that you unconditionally love him. He's not sure if I will. We wound the people we think are going to go nowhere. We hurt and get angry with the people who are closest to us because we believe that they're not going anywhere. This is how broken our hearts are. Those who are closest, we hurt the most. In Edward's sermon, so wonderfully titled, he says this, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And when we get a vision of our sin then we'll get a right vision of who God is and we get a right vision of who God is we get a right vision of our sin one of the reasons we don't want to admit that the issue is in my heart because that has devastating consequences this is what makes the cross so beautiful what you and i often would look at and say is just an awkward moment in the scriptures becomes the place where god's wrath and justice come fully to bear It's on the cross where we do not just give this night's tucked in neat vision of God who loves us. We get the wrath of God poured out on his son. The cross is where he poured out his righteous wrath in love against sin on his son. It is his anger. It is in his anger where we find his affection. Paul summarizes that paradoxical moment and meaning this way in Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus endures the cross not because God is just love and that God dealt with his anger, or that his anger was misplaced, and so Jesus is protecting us from an inappropriate anger being placed upon us. Jesus endures the cross precisely because God's anger is accurate. And Jesus dies. He's murdered. He takes death for you and for me, that we might be freed from the righteous consequences of sin and have life in him forever God is not irrational or awkward at the cross he is wrathful he is just and he is love he is all of those at the same time God's wrath J.I. Packer says in the Bible is not capricious self-indulgent irritable morally ignoble thing that the human that human anger so often is it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil and Jesus takes on the fullness of that for you and for me Matthew 5, verse 23 and 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The impracticality of this practical application is so severe for us. With no respect to sort of a Western concept of time and space, the application, the way we live this out is in the very moment you remember that there is anger that is persistent with a family member, you deal with it right then and there. Even when you're offering a gift, or maybe I would want to say, no, put, put that in the box first, then go deal with stuff. The Lord says, drop your gift right now, deal with your anger. It is a cancer, it is corrosive, it is broken. See, at the same time, the Lord Jesus elevates the moral standard of the Ten Commandments, but through himself makes it possible to live it out. See, that's what Jesus was getting at with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said, I'd been doing all of those things since I was a kid, and what is Jesus' response? He says, well, one thing you lack, go sell everything and then give to the poor. What Jesus understood is though this man's hands may be clean, his heart was still broken and far from God. And the goodness and mercy of Jesus, is—he, Jesus doesn't just deal with your hands. Jesus doesn't just make your hands clean. He gives you a new heart, one that is no longer bound by anger and vengeance and murder, but one that is bound by righteousness and love and worship towards a God whose wrath and justice are in perfect harmony with his love. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have been so flippant. I've been so flippant, so casual with sin. It's revealed in my discomfort with the way you are not casual with sin. We need your help in this, Father. I don't just need a reminder today, God, I need resurrection. We don't just need to remember the right thing to do and go out and do it. We need transformation in our hearts and what a brilliant promise it is that you can do that and you do that through your son. And so God, would you make us a people, would you make us a church who cherish one another, who love one another, who care for one another, but not by never calling out sin and not by being embarrassed by you, but by living in such a way Where we see the fullness of your love, the fullness of your anger and wrath even on display in this world. Wrath against sin, love and affection for your glory and for your people. So God, would you do that great work in us and through us that we might become the people you're calling us to be. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.